About two months ago, I was scheduled to preach in this pulpit on the 27th of October, drawing from a text carefully critiqued this summer by my fellow worship associates, luxuriously revised during weeks when I was on break from teaching, I'd never had a more relaxed preparation to lead worship. Wow, what a great low-pressure model for lay preaching, <laughs> I thought. I'm so glad for our new minister. About one month ago, Jackie Kale and I met with Oscar to discuss an experience that our social justice committee and our denominational affairs committee were preparing to promote. I knew he would be delivering a sermon on our belonging to the UUA on the 13th. It was perfect. <laughs> our proposed effort was directly tied to a UUA study action. He was clearly in an ideal position to endorse our plans from the pulpit and hopefully inspire your participation. Instead, I left the meeting having agreed to prepare an entirely different service, <laughs> which Oscar enthusiastically supported, <laughs> loosely defined as what might it mean to belong to democracy. So last minute was this change that even the printed newsletter carried the description of the sermon I thought I was going to give. Apologies to those of you who thought you were going to hear that one. I feel you. <laughs> it was during that meeting with Jackie and Oscar that I first realized that our magnificent choir was scheduled for my Sunday. The choir. I don't know how Oscar feels when his sermon is supported by the choir, but I consider it a high, high honor. And you have fulfilled every worry and anxiety I have. <laughs> So the choir was scheduled for a service I was leading, a service whose shape and content was a dull lump of clay. <laughs> About 10 days ago, I had a dream that during this service, the choir just kept singing. <laughs> it was five minutes before the hour and I had not uttered one word. <laughs> I knew in my dream I had failed the choir, <laughs> that my inability to deliver had been read by Julie Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt grateful and ashamed. <laughs> Anxiety dreams are great, right? <laughs> in truth, this topic and the territory into which it bleeds is so charged, so fraught with discomfort, and so multi-layered that not only was I unsure where to start, but whether I should start at all. Hopefully, my heart is in a holy place, and that will be enough today. Hopefully, your hearts are in a holy place, and I will be enough today. I will draw heavily from the New York Times 1619 project, which Jackie already read a short excerpt from, in part to honor the work of those writers 
and in part because their words provide a foundation for the study action I mentioned earlier that addresses corruption of our democracy more boldly and compellingly than our own study guide. That study guide lends an implied endorsement to the timeline Jackie and Becky and Joellen are going to roll out before you. It will be available after the service. It is a powerful representation of the long, long history of selective democracy in the United States. The 1619 Project would have us acknowledge a different point of origin. Our slaveholding origins are 400 years old. Thank you. Though the exact date has been lost to history, a ship arrived at Point Comfort in the British colony of Virginia, bearing a cargo of 20 to 30 enslaved Africans. Jackie read those words of Nicole Hannah-Jones, who authored the front piece for the 1619 Project. And that author continues, the United States is a nation founded on both an ideal and a lie. Our Declaration of Independence, signed on July 4th, 1776, proclaims that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But the white men who drafted those words did not believe them to be true for the hundreds of thousands of black people in their midst. And I would add to her words not to mention the multitude of native nations whose cultures and lives they were in the process of decimating. I knew that it is an ugly truth, but I hadn't really understood what she said next, that wrapped in our founding mythology is another hideous reality I quote, one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. By 1776, Britain had grown deeply conflicted over its role in the barbaric institution that had reshaped the Western Hemisphere. We sing Amazing Grace in this church and some of us know it was written by a former slave trader turned abolitionist. A few may even have seen the movie based on his story, a movie that left me wondering how on earth Britain had abandoned slavery so long before we did. Hannah Jones observes that abolishing slavery would have upended the economy of the colonies in both the North and the South, and points out that the wealth and prominence that allowed 33-year-old Thomas Jefferson and the other founding fathers to believe they could successfully break off from one of the mightiest empires in the world came from the dizzying profits generated by chattel slavery. It is not incidental 
that 10 of this nation's first 12 presidents were enslavers. She asserts that the shameful paradox of continuing chattel slavery in a nation founded on individual freedom, scholars today assert, led to a hardening of the racial caste system. This ideology reinforced not just by laws, but by racist science and literature, maintained that black people were subhuman, a belief that allowed white Americans to live with the betrayal. And this brings me to one of the concrete things it might mean to belong to democracy. On November 10, after the service, a brown bag carpool caravan will depart from our parking lot and travel to Omaha's Durham Museum to view the traveling exhibit, Race, Are We Really So Different? I first saw this exhibit in 2009 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I promise you will leave it altered. 50 some of us traveled to Kansas City to attend the General Assembly of our denomination. It would be grand to see numbers like that storming the Durham. Jackie and I will be at a table where you can learn more about how to show up for this adventure. One of the points you'll find on the timeline that Jackie and Becky held up along with Joanne, is the U.S. Supreme Court's 1857 Dred Scott decision, ruling that black people, whether enslaved or free, came from a slave race. Here's Hannah Jones again. Democracy was for citizens, and the Negro race, the court ruled, was a separate class of persons, which the founders had not regarded as a portion of the people or citizens of the government and had no rights, which a white man was bound to respect. This belief that black people were not merely enslaved, but were a slave race, became the root of the endemic racism that we still cannot purge from this nation to this day. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln, the president we credit <coughs> with freeing the slaves, invited five black leaders to the White House to let them know that he'd gotten Congress to appropriate funds to ship black people once freed to another country. These are his words. You and we are different races. Your race suffers very greatly, many of them, by living among us while ours suffer from your presence. In a word, we suffer on each side. Belonging to democracy to me means carrying our share of the weight of this too, making sure that history is known and taught through multiple lenses, especially those that are non-white. Not only did blacks not take Lincoln up on his offer, but as Hannah Jones put it, liberated by war, they did not seek vengeance on their oppressors as Lincoln and so many other white Americans feared. They did the opposite. During this nation's period of reconstruction from 1865 
1877, formerly enslaved people zealously engaged with the democratic process. Including perhaps their biggest achievement, which I benefit from, and several others in the room do, the establishment of that most democratic of American institutions, the public school. For this fleeting moment known as Re Reconstruction, she notes, the majority in Congress seemed to embrace the idea that out of the ashes of the Civil War, we could create the multiracial democracy that black Americans envisioned, even if our founding fathers did not. But it would not last. Anti-black racism runs in the very DNA of this country as does the belief so well articulated by Abraham Lincoln that black people are an obstacle to national unity. I encourage you to seek out and read the documents of the 1619 Project and to reflect on the ways selective democracy has robbed and continues to rob so many of our citizens of their constitutionally promised rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Looking at the timeline we've shared today is a way to get started, but only that. Traveling to Omaha could be another step, but only a step. And we will offer a two-session experience on Sunday evenings on the 18th and 25th of November to further expand your awareness of the study action issue of the UUA on corruption of our democracy and to discuss actions that we might take as a community. Manning Maribel also wrote in 2001, the fundamental problem for the viability of American democracy rests with whether the majority of American people, its leaders, political organizations and institutions have the capacity and vision to dismantle the complex structural barriers which severely curtail the democratic rights and socioeconomic opportunities of millions of their fellow citizens who are African American, Latino, Native American, Arab American, and Asian and Pacific Island Americans. He asks, can democracy be more than an abstract ideal when tens of millions of its citizens feel alienated and marginalized by what have become the normal and routine consequences of American racialization in daily life? What about you? What about me? What about us as UUs? Our own UU history as we've discussed a bit in the last couple of years, is checkered with blindness in holding ourselves accountable for centering our faith in whiteness. In 1993, when planners of our own General Assembly in Charlotte, North Carolina, conceived of the Thomas Jefferson Ball, to which attendees were encouraged to dress in period costumes, black UUs asked whether that meant they should wear rags and chains. They protested the ball at a plenary session of the assembly 
and what did our largely white denomination decide? The ball would go on as planned and people should attend according to their own conscience. This was not our denomination's first racially fired rodeo. An exodus of black UUs had occurred in the late 1960s, a time that ironically included the martyrdom of James Reeb, a white UU minister who was bludgeoned to death by members of the Klan. The revered historian of the black UU experience, Reverend Mark Morrison Reed, wrote that it's just about right to characterize our denominational struggles with race at the time of that exodus as the white controversy over black empowerment. In essence, my belief is that to belong to democracy, particularly as a white Unitarian Universalist, is to courageously examine the complete history of selective democracy on which our privilege still stands. To claim it, feel ourselves accountable for it, and get busy rectifying it with all the integrity and humility we can muster. Amen.